Tonight, Lord willing, uh, we'll finish up the book of Hosea. You guys ready for that? Uh, got some work, work to do. Three chapters that we've left sort of undone. So here we go. Why don't you turn with me to Hosea chapter 11. There's so many amazing things I think the book of Hosea teaches us. But if you were to kind of summarize a little bit of the book of Hosea, I just wanted to review before we dive into this last section of Hosea. Um, you know, um, we, we first learned in chapters one through three that God is a sovereign God. Um, you know, verse, chapters one through three, that God has a plan and a purpose and he's gonna unfold his plan and his purpose. Um, but, you know, we, we see how uh, man's plans, we, we make our plans, but God's ultimately gonna do what he's gonna do and his sovereignty is important. We see him as a sovereign God. Um, the second section, we see him as a holy God in chapters four through seven where he really tells us what his requirements of humanity would be and how far the people of Israel, the Northern 10 tribes, how far, far they would fall short of that. And so then we kind of saw the, the prosecuting attorney, the, the, the section of the, the legal terms that were being used there. And he's a just God as he's the judge. And um, these are kind of the holy, sovereign, just kind of things that make us all a little nervous. The, the, first, the first chapters of the book of Hosea, man, you just kind of think, boy, God is a little bit scary. But that's where the last section comes in. It reminds us that God is also a loving God, chapters 11 through 14, really to the end of the book. And, uh, and I love the, the sort of the package deal. Um, and you know, by the way, there's a temptation for churches to sort of major on any one of these sort of attributes of God, but really as Bible students, we need to cover all of the above. Um, it's so fun talking about God being a loving God. Um, it's right to talk about God being a just God. It's a little scary talking about his sovereignty, but, um, but his holiness, that's even more scary because the Lord says, be ye holy as I the Lord am holy. And so you think, oh man, good luck with that. And it can be really startling, but um, that when you have that balance, you realize that man, he's loving, and he is holy and just and sovereign all at the same time. And so the book of Hosea really does give us sort of that package deal. And, um, and really, uh, we're gonna see sort of the birth of a nation here in chapter uh, um, you know, 11. Uh, and, and we'll see the death of the nation, but it's all kind of talking about how the Lord loves these people, the people of Hosea's time and Israel in general. So let's take a look. It starts off in Hosea 11, 1. When Israel was a child, then I loved him and called my son out of Egypt. So question, when did God call his son out of Egypt? Anybody wanna take a stab? Moses, that's correct. Back when uh, Moses called the people of Israel out of Egypt, uh, the Lord used Moses to you know, have the Pharaoh let the people of Israel go. And, and how important that is to know that, uh, you know, this would be the birth of the nation when God calls them out of Egypt. Uh, Joseph in Egypt settles there. And then for 450 years, the Jews become slaves to the Egyptians. Um, and that's when they would be broken into the 12 tribes of Israel or the 12 tribes of Jacob, the sons of Jacob. And that's really, isn't it amazing? The birth of a nation. I mean, how many nations were birthed basically in slavery um, where they started there? That's really where the Jews started from Joseph and you know Jacob's time um, all the way through 450 years of slavery. That was the birth of their nation. But isn't it interesting here? It says, but the Lord, he says, I loved him 
and called my son out of Egypt. Um, question, you know, this, this raises an interesting question. Why did God choose Israel? Have you ever thought of that? By, why didn't the Lord choose the Americans? You know, back in uh, 1776, why didn't God say, you know what, those, those are my people right there. Um, he didn't, uh, as it turns out. Now, now, you and I know, if you know your Bible, as believers in Jesus, who was a Jew, one of God's chosen people, um, we get to be grafted into that vine of God's chosen people. And, and that's so what a beautiful thing that is. Romans 9, 10, and 11 articulates that beautifully. But, but why did God choose the Jews? Like, why didn't he choose the Moabites or the Jebusites or the flashlights or any of those people? Um, he, he ends up choosing this interesting group of people, uh, Father Abraham and his sons, why the Jews? Well, there's really only one reason that we're given in the scripture and it's, I'll just give you a quick reference. You can jot it down if you want to, but it's Deuteronomy chapter seven, verses seven through nine. It tells us why the Lord chose the Jews. Here it is. The Lord did not set his love upon you nor choose you because you were in number more than any other people for you were the fewest of all people, but because the Lord loved you and because he would keep the oath which he had sworn unto your fathers, uh, hath the Lord brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you out of the house of bondmen from the hand of the Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord thy God, he is God, the faithful God, which keepeth covenant and mercy with them that love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. Verse eight of chapter seven of Deuteronomy tells us, the Lord chose you because the Lord loved you. That's just it. The Lord just chose to love, you know, it, it's a little bit like when you see a young couple getting married and sometimes you kind of think, oh man, that's so cool. What a perfect couple. But have you, have you ever seen a situation where you're kind of like, wow, that's interesting. Like, like, and I gotta say, usually it goes more one gender than the other. I don't know uh, if you understand what I'm saying, but sometimes I'm like, I wonder why she chose him. That's curious. Once in a while, you know, every now and then you go, yeah, that's a great, what a great couple. But most of the time you're like, wow, I don't, I don't know what she sees really in that, that guy. Hmm. But you can't do that. Why? Well, because the person can choose to love whoever they wanna love. Um, and, and, you know, that's what love really is, you, you, by choice. And God says, listen, because the Lord loved the Jews, that's why he, that's why he chose them. It's just that simple. Um, now, some people struggle with this. And again, this reaches into the sovereignty of God. Um, you know, that, that statement in, uh, you know, Romans chapter nine, verse 13, freaks everybody out. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. And you think, Why? And I struggled with this for years and years because, you know, honestly, as I read the story, Jacob, he's a little creepy. Uh, Jacob, he's the smooth man, the Bible says. He's smooth. What's, what's up with a smooth man? And, and he liked to do the dishes in the, in the kitchen with the ladies. He was smooth and he, and he was kind of Martha Stewart living, you know, uh, Magnolia, um, sh you know, Shiplath, all that stuff. Uh, that's what Jacob was into. But Esau, man, he was Mr. Field and Stream. Cabela's and he was hairy and he stank, a man's man, you know, and, and you kind of go, man, uh, Jacob have I hated, Esau have I loved. Uh, but the Lord says, nope, that's not the way it is. 
And you think, well, who is God to choose Jacob over Esau? Well, if you keep reading in Romans 9, 14, the next verse, what shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. For he saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. God can do whatever he wants to do. And that's what his sovereignty really is. Um, and, and that's why we can just say, well, God chose the Jews as his people in his sovereignty. He chose them and he loves them. And I, I think that's really cool because really it, it seems that there's almost nothing Israel can do to stop his love. Even in their horrible rebellion that we've been reading about here, God's love is amazing and unconditional and powerful. And we're gonna see that as we continue to read this. But, but um, you know, this idea of the Lord choosing uh, someone over another, and, and it starts to get a little scary when you start thinking, well, did the Lord choose me? If he chose the Jews and he hated you know, Esau and he loved Jacob, what if the Lord didn't choose me? How do you know if you've been predestinated, divinely elected? People get into this big, you know, debate. And it's understandable because it is a complex issue when you, you know, debate with the Calvinists or the Arminianists, and, you know, um, did you choose God or did God choose you? And why does God say that you need to accept his love to be saved, but he already knows who's gonna be saved to begin with? And some people get really derailed by this, but I, I really don't have a problem with this and I'll tell you why. God wants it from our perspective to be a choice that we make, but from his perspective, he's already made the choice. But then it wasn't my choice. Um, uh, let's see, you can choose God right now or you can reject him. Um, it's your choice right now. Yeah, but if God already knows, yep, he already knows you're saved or he already knows you're doomed. Which, which one is it? It's your choice. Um, Brett, my, my brain starts to short circuit. But the reason why that starts to get a little confusing is because I believe God exists outside of time and space. We don't have the, you know, the, he doesn't have those limitations that we do. But somehow in God's sovereignty and also his omnipotence is all power, uh, you know, uh, somehow he works it out to where it really is our decision, free will. But at the same time, he already chose you and divinely elected you. Now, now some people are, wanna really tighten the screws on this, this discussion. And the funny thing is, I've read the scholars uh, from you know, centuries ago to the current present day scholars, you know, and, and they all debate this. But you know, anybody who's honest, they kind of have to say, we just don't get it. We just don't understand it fully, but we're just gonna believe what the Bible says. Yes, I need to accept the Lord. I must be born again and, and choose to accept Christ as my personal savior. But if you've done that, then you know, well, God chose you before the foundations of the world. It was already done. I like H.A. Ironside, you know, he, he doesn't try to pin it down perfectly, but he kind of paints this, we call it Ironside's door, you know, the scholars. H.A. Um, Ironside talks about you're walking along in a hallway and you see this door and you're like, hmm, wonder what's in the door. And, and then you see a sign over it, it says, all who wish may enter. You're like, hmm, interesting. So you walk in and you see this beautifully decorated dinner table with a bunch of seats and chairs, like, oh, it's a fancy dinner. And as you walk and look around, there's name plates at each dinner, you know, those little names where people are set. And lo and behold, your name is there at the dinner table. You were selected before you even knew that was a room. 
That's what the Lord does. He invites you and he sets the place for you. And then it's your choice whether you walk in the door. But it was already there to begin with. It was already preset. Um, I, I like that. That's really what the Lord does for us. And so don't wrestle with that one. Just accept it. Uh, God's sovereignty, man's responsibility. Um, I don't see a conflict there, honestly. I just see that God is huge. And if he was big enough to figure out, he wouldn't be, if he was small enough to figure out, he wouldn't be big enough to worship. Uh, and I believe God is huge. So we don't have to worry about that. Well, so back to this, uh, you know, Hosea 11, um, the Lord called him, you know, out. Now there's something else here that you might want to uh, say and, and, uh, and see, because this is really important. Uh, and this is where, oh man, I, if I had tons of time tonight, I, I could just spend time just on the single verse. Because um, this is one of those amazing examples of the layers of the Bible. You know how I talk about layer upon layer and, and, and the similitudes, we'll come across that word again in a second, but the Lord uses all kinds of techniques to, to speak to us in his word. You know, the book of Hosea is full of literary tools. He speaks in puns and figures of speech and all kinds of uh, layers upon layers of types and pictures and levels. And it's just, it, the Bible is incredible that way. And you, you definitely see the f- fingerprint of God on the scriptures. But as it turns out, um, the, uh, the gospel of Matthew tells us that, that Hosea wasn't actually speaking about the children of Israel in Egypt in their slavery. Well, bro, you said, forget what I said. Uh, um, no, I, I'm gonna stick with that because the Hebrew reader would get that. And I'll just call that layer one. The, the, the layer one here is, you know, when Israel was a child, I loved him and called my son out of Egypt. Just about any Hebrew Jew would say, of course, this is in fact about the Jews being enslaved in Egypt. And it is. But what does Matthew 24 tell us? Well, as it turns out, we get a little more of a commentary. Um, do you remember back, uh, you know, when Jesus was born in Bethlehem? Um, and, um, and King Herod was, you know, that crafty, wicked, you know, king that wanted to say, oh, I'd like to meet Jesus, the king of the Jews. Uh, and so let me know where he is. And remember, you know, the wise men and the whole thing where they kind of bolted. And, and, um, but Herod, he was uh, so really worried about the Jews having a king and, and just an evil dude. He goes through all that region and he seeks out to kill all the male children of the Jews, two years old and younger. Um, uh, that's a, one of the most horrible times. I mean, you think about what a horrible night that would have been as Herod's army would have ran through the land, killing these little baby boys, a horrible night. But as it turns out, the, the gospel of Matthew tells us more about that. Check it out, Matthew chapter two. You can jot this down in your notes. Matthew two, verses 14 and 15. When he arose, he took the young child, that's Joseph, and his mother by night and departed into Egypt and was there until the death of Herod that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet saying, out of Egypt have I called my son. Isn't that something? That's, that's Matthew under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit saying, yeah, you guys all think Hosea chapter four, uh, you know, 11 verse one is about bond, the bondage of, in Egypt. Yeah, it is, but it's actually even more about Jesus the Messiah. And this is layer number two. And this is the way the Bible works. 
And what's so amazing, and I, I, I probably will pale uh, in, in my ability to uh, really communicate this with just a single verse, but the Bible is so full of this. There's no way the Bible authors, and I say that, of course, you know the Bible's inspired by the Holy Spirit, but written through the hand of man. There's no way human authors could have made such an intertwined, intertangled message system that works out perfectly on so many layers. I'm just showing you two little layers of a single verse, but both prophecies, uh, both words are actually true. That Jesus was in Egypt and he would be there for quite a while. Uh, And the Lord would call his son, God's only begotten son, out of Egypt, just like Matthew says. So that was a fulfillment of Hosea's prophecy. Which by the way, sometimes you'll get you know, people saying, you guys at Athey Creek, or you, know, you guys that go through the Bible, you're always looking for pictures and types and symbology and layers of the Bible. Um, and there's people that are kind of critical of this. And, and I would just say, um, those that are critical of such things really are being critical of the Bible itself, not just Athey Creek or churches that you know, t- teach about the pictures and the layers. And I'll just tell you why, because the Bible speaks of itself saying, you know, lo, I come in the volume of the book, it is written to me from Genesis to Revelations about Jesus. You know, 1 Corinthians 10 says, Jesus is the rock that followed them in the wilderness. Remember the one that was struck, struck with the rod and water came forth. Jesus said, you know, if you drink of the water that I give, you'll never thirst again. You know, there's pictures and layers and types and examples, and it's all throughout the Bible. I, I bet we're only seeing a tiny fraction of it. I bet when we get to heaven, we're gonna be blown away at the layer upon layer upon layer that we missed. But this is one of those things, you just kind of read through Hosea, yeah, yeah, out of Egypt, slavery, blah, blah, blah. But then you realize, wait a minute, this is about Jesus Christ. And we have that confirmed in Matthew chapter two, verses 14 and 15, quoting Hosea the prophet of all people. Um, So this is what makes the Bible, um, to me, not only fun, but it also shows the fingerprints of God on the whole word of God. Um, there's no way human people could have you know, done this in the way that it, it actually uh, shakes out. It's too, uh, it'd be too much of a giant coincidence for all this stuff to work out uh, if you actually check it out and do the math. Well, anyway, so we know that verse one is actually a, a prophecy concerning Jesus. And it goes on in verse two. As they called them, so they went from them. They sacrificed unto Baalim, uh, Baalim or Baalim, which is a plural of Baal, and burned incense to graven images. I taught Ephraim also to go, taking them by their arms, but they knew not that I healed them. I drew them with cords of a man, with bands of love, and was to them as they that take off the yoke of their jaws, and I laid meat unto them. Notice here, I mean, what an amazing thing that um, the Lord does. Now, by the way, um, in verses one through four, we, we see the first um, you know, third of this chapter. I'm gonna break it down into little chunks here. First of all, we have the past, then we have the present, then we have the future. First, the past. Um, and we, we basically see this love, verse one, that God has for, for his people. Um, but in the past, the love meets ingratitude. That's what we'll call this first section, the past, the love of God meeting ingratitude of the people. Here the Lord sort of, you almost hear him pleading, don't you understand what I've done for you? I've called you out, but you sacrificed to Baal and you burned incense to graven images. And then notice these kind things. The Lord, he lists them here. He says, um, verse one, I have loved them. Verse two, I have, uh, uh, well, even verse two, I have called them. 
it says there. Verse three, I have taught them. Uh, verse three, at the end, I have healed them. Verse four, I drew them out. Um, verse, verse four, it also says that I've taken off the yoke of their jaws. You can, you can almost uh, say that they were demuzzled. You know, he took off the muzzle that was on them. And then it says he laid meat unto them. That's my favorite one right there where he stuck a nice ribeye steak right in front of him. So loving. Um, doesn't get better than that if you ask me, but <laughs> no, I'm just, no. But that's what the Lord says, man, I fed you. I removed the muzzle from off your mouth. I drew you out, I healed you, I taught you, I called you, I loved you. This is the Lord just saying, oh, Israel, you know. Um, and, and, and yet the people, they said, yeah, whatever. Even though the Lord did all that stuff for them, they said, we will instead worship Baal. It's interesting, you know, if, have you ever had a pet? You know, the old saying, uh, you know, don't bite the hand that feeds you. Have you ever had a pet that does that? It's not very pleasant. You know, here you give, you know, the dog a, a nice bone or a, or a treat or a snack or something and, and it bites your hand as you're trying to give it. If you have a dog like that, that's kind of a bummer. Uh, uh, now, if you have a golden retriever, that doesn't happen. Uh, goldens are always sweet and kind. Um, <laughs> but, but uh, you know, it is interesting. You know, there are creatures out there that they'll bite your hand. If you, if you give them some food and if you reach around them, they'll bite your hand, you know, and, and, uh, and that's Israel. That's kind of what the Lord's saying. Man, here I fed you and taught you and caught you and, and healed you and drew you out and demuzzled you and look what you're doing. You've bitten me back by worshiping Baal and burning incense to these images. And so the past, uh, love meets ingratitude. Now, when you're a parent, one thing you'll find that's interesting is when you're trying to teach your kids how to be, behavioral issues. Um, you know, bad behavior or just being, you know, sinful or, or whatever, um, you can work with that. You know, teaching them right from wrong, the do's and the don'ts. That, that, that's actually what I found as a parent over the years. That's the easy part. But there's other parts that might be a little more difficult. Like for example, uh, unthankfulness or ingratitude. How do you deal with that? If at Christmas time, you give your kids all these wonderful gifts under the, under the tree and the presents and your kids tear into them and like, <sighs> okay, whatever. Aren't, uh, honey, aren't you gonna thank your dad, you know, for those, nope. You know, well, well, wait a minute, you, you, Junior, you need to be thankful because uh, ingratitude is pretty ugly. And you gotta work that out of your kids. If that's in your kids, you gotta teach them to be grateful and thankful. Well, that's what's happening here with Israel. It's like, you know, the do's and don'ts, that's hard enough. But the Lord's saying, man, you guys are unthankful and you, you, you really didn't return your, your affection to me, but you went to a whole nother God, Baal, and they burned incense. I, and that's really what idolatry is, by the way. Just the, the, the base definition of idolatry is putting anything in place of the Lord to look for nourishment, uh, provision, for satisfaction. That's what idolatry is. So you and I might not be worshiping Baal, but it's the same problem when you or I put anything in place of God or, or we, we even are you know, thinking that the good things we have are because of something other than God. Sometimes we actually forget where the blessings really do, where they come from, and we should never do that. One of the worst things I think you, you might be as a child of God is ungrateful, unthankful. So that's something to watch out for. The children of Israel are doing that right now in this part of the story. So that's the past, love meets ingratitude. But then we come to the next section, the present, ingratitude then is met by punishment. And let's read, it says there in verse five, he shall not return 
into the land of Egypt, but the Assyrian shall be his king because they refused to return. And the sword shall abide on his cities and consume his branches and devour them because of their own counsels. And my people are bent to backsliding from me. Though they called them to be the most high, none at all would exalt him. What a sad, you know, indictment again against Israel. Now there's some language things here that are kind of important. It says, you know, in verse six, the sword, the, you know, the, the, the punishment, the tool of God for punishment would be the Assyrian empire. And we've been talking about that. You know, the Assyrians led by Tiglath-Pileser, 722 uh, BC, that's when they would come down. The tool of God would be the Assyrians. The sword abiding in the cities basically means blood would flow in their cities, which is a horrifying kind of thing. The sword abiding on his cities. And then it says, and shall consume his branches. The word branches um, is, is probably a rough translation there for the King Jimmy, but uh, the, the newer translations, if you see it, they get it right when it says beams or you know, like the bars that are locking the gate. If you can picture the big city gate, the Hebrew word for this is actually the word uh, you know, badim or bad <laughs> is the word bad, B-A-D. Um, uh, and, and the word bad in the Hebrew means beam or, or crossbar. So that's what's going on. The, the Assyrians would crush through their city gates and then blood would spill by the sword. That's the idea when it says that. Because they took their own counsels. Notice verse six at the very end, because they took their own counsels. They, they didn't listen to the counsel of God, but they listened to the counsel of men. This is what I talked about on Sunday, about the Isaiah 30. Woe unto the rebellious children of Israel, for they take counsel of men and not of God. Be careful, Christians. The world loves to push, and I'm not even gonna say give. They, they love to push their counsel in your face and tell you and me what we should be doing. And I can't believe you believe that or you're doing that and they wanna give you their counsel. But be careful not to be those who are duped by the counsel of this world. But we need to take only the, really the counsel of God. Now, if, if the world happens to give good godly counsel, good for them. Um, but I'm finding that farther and fewer between. So, you know, when you start looking at say like psychology, psychology is an interesting study and there's some things that are true in psychology, but if it's true, in psychology, it's also true in the Bible. And you'll find it in the Bible and you'll, it'll line up with God's holy word. But if psychology controverts the scripture and goes against it, um, that's when you have to say, you know what, I'm gonna choose the counsel of God rather than the counsel of men. Oh, but Brett, it's science. Be careful. Um, you know what people are doing today about science? They're calling it science, but it's falsely so-called. And the Bible even says, watch out in the last days for science falsely so-called. Isn't that something that the Bible warns about that in the last days? Watch out for that. We're seeing that. Be careful. So, you know, be careful with this on, when it comes to, you know, taking the counsel of the world because the counsel of God is the only one that matters. And the, the indictment here is um, ingratitude met by punishment. And they were just listening to the world's counsel and doing what others told them to do, but not, not only not listening to God, but then it says here, you know, it says here in verse um, seven, my people are bent to backsliding um, from me. It's like the, um, they're, they, they're bent, just they're bent that way. It's, it's what they tend to do is just backslide is what it's saying. Um, and though they called them to the most high, none at all would exalt him. That's, that's when you know a culture 
is at its you know, zenith of, of, or I should say at their peak of ingratitude is when they refuse to exalt the Lord. Remember there in Romans one, that most powerful indictment against the world when it says they were neither thankful nor gave thanks, but they worshiped the creation rather than the creator. And then Romans one goes on and talks about those people that, that the Lord would give them over to their own lust and their own desires and sins, and they'd be destroyed ultimately. So we have to be careful not to get into this place. This is where the Jews found themselves, uh, a place of ingratitude. So then that brings us to the third section and final section of this chapter. Um, and it brings us to um, you know, the future. Uh, compassion brings restoration. So number one, the past, love meets ingratitude. Number two, the present, ingratitude met by punishment. But number three, the future, compassion brings restoration. Um, let's, let's go to verse eight. How shall I give thee up, Ephraim? How shall I deliver thee, Israel? And how shall I make thee as Abma? And how shall I set thee as Zivoim? Mine heart is turned within me. My repentings are kindled together. I will not execute with, uh, the, pardon me, I will not execute the fierceness of mine anger. I will not return to destroy Ephraim for I am God and not man the Holy One in the midst of thee, and I will not enter into the city. They shall walk after the Lord. He shall roar like a lion. When he shall roar, then the children shall tremble from the west. They shall tremble as a bird out of Egypt and as a dove out of the land of Assyria. And I will place them in their houses, saith the Lord. Ephraim compass about me with lies and the house of Israel with deceit, but Judah yet return, uh, pardon me, ruleth with God and is faithful with the saints. So in verse 12, you know, Judah is still in good standing. That's the Southern two tribes, but that's not gonna stand for very long. We'll see even in the next chapter in a few verses where Judah finds themselves in hot water too. But here we see, you know, this final section, the future, uh, compassion brings restoration. Um, this is the Lord who, who is trying to be gracious and compassionate to this rebellious people. And we see that in, in verse eight, when it talks about, he, he's sort of asking these rhetorical questions. How shall I give thee up, Ephraim? How shall I deliver thee, Israel? How shall I make thee as Adma? How shall I make thee as Zephoim? Who, the, who are these people? Well, these are actually cities, Adma and Zephoim. Does anybody remember what cities uh, they're, they're associated with, anybody? Yes, Sodom and Gomorrah. These, if you remember the story, it's not just Sodom and Gomorrah that was wiped out, but there was surrounding cities that were wiped out too, along with Sodom and Gomorrah. These are two cities that were also wiped out, Adma and Zivoim. And so the Lord's saying, man, my heart is turned within me. My repentance kindled together. In other words, he's saying, how am I gonna spare you, Israel? Um, you know, even why wouldn't I treat you like I did Adba and Zeboim? But the, the Lord says, I will not, verse uh, nine, I will not excuse the fierceness of my anger. I will not return to destroy Ephraim for I am God and not man. You might say, well, Brett, God destroyed uh, Ephraim. Well, actually he didn't, if you recall. Uh, the Assyrians did. Oh, well, that's just a, uh, uh, you know, technicality. Nope, not really. Um, if you remember Sodom and Gomorrah, God rained fire and brimstone from heaven and crushed those cities. That was God who did it. Um, but God in his love has is, is tried to woo Israel away from their stupidity. And he's saying, get out of the, the line of fire. Get out of the place of danger. But the people of Israel wouldn't. And so the Lord lifted up his hand of covering 
but it was ultimately their own sins that got them. And ultimately the Assyrians would be the tool used and God did allow it, but God is not the one who personally did it. They did it to themselves. You have to understand that. It's one of the themes of the book of Hosea. You know, you gotta kind of own your own repercussions of your sin. And that's what these people are having to learn. So how can I turn you over to destruction? You know, the Lord's saying, one of the newer translations I think says, my sympathies are stirred up. His sympathies stirred up. That's interesting that the Lord's uh, feeling uh, sympathetic for them. But he says, for I am God and not man. Man, I've marked that in my Bible where he says, I am God and not man. Because sometimes you and I, we try to superimpose human emotions and human tendencies on a perfect, um, you know, God in heaven. Um, And so like when we read things in the Bible, for I, the Lord, am a jealous God, we wanna superimpose human jealousy on God, but we can't do that. He's God, not man. God is perfect. So when he has a jealousy, we have to understand there's such thing as a righteous jealousy versus unrighteous jealousy. What does that look like? Um, I've always talked about this because it, it stuck. And, and those of you that know Oprah's story, uh, you know, she was a, a you know, Jesus loving Christian until she heard the preacher say, God is a jealous God. And that derailed her faith. She'll tell the story, look it up on YouTube. You can watch her story. And it's so sad because she just never really got the memo that God is not a man. So when the Bible says that God is a jealous God, you have to understand he's not jealous for, you know, he's not jealous of you. Boy, I wish I could be like you, or I wish I could have what you have. That's not what God's saying. God, God's not jealous, you know, of anybody. He's jealous for his people. Um, and it's a, it's a godly, beautiful term that God, it's like a parent being jealous for their child. They love them and they want what's best for them. That's the language of the Bible. And it's so sad that somebody's faith got derailed by just not looking it up in the dictionary. It's that simple. But don't make that mistake. Don't superimpose human characteristics on God. Um, now, it's a, it is tricky, I'll admit, because we were created in the image of God. So there are things we do and think and uh, talents and giftings that we have that are linked to God and, and his nature. But we are a very tweaked version of that. We're a fallen condition. We're a sinful, uh, fallen people. And so uh, we're only a faint shadow of who God really is. And we're the sinful version. Now there's good news for the believer. When we see him, we will what? Be like him. So we were made in the likeness of his image. But when we see him, we'll become like him. I think that's when we get our glorified bodies and we'll, we'll clean up all that stupidity of humanity. Uh, that's gonna happen when you see the Lord. I look forward to that. But that's what the Lord's saying. You know, he's saying, man, I I wanna show compassion. You know, like he said, my sympathy is stirred up. I'm jealous for you, not of you. And um, and verses uh, nine through 11, you know, the promise to return the people to the land is seen there. You know, um, you know, um, and um, when will he return the people? It's when the lion roars. This is interesting, verse 10. It says, you know, they shall walk after the Lord. He shall roar like a lion when they shall roar. Then the children shall tremble from the west. Now this tells us something. These are the kind of details you have to take note in the Bible. Because really almost everybody in the story thus far, in, 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 on the map at least, is all in the east in the time of Hosea. There's nobody really west of Israel so who is he talking about here? Well, this is where, if you kind of read into it and say, wow, he's talking about the people, when the lion roars, they're gonna come and tremble from the west. 
That's speaking of the diaspora, the children of Israel that were scattered. They would be scattered. And by the way, there's several scatterings. Um, we could talk about 722, 586, 70 AD, various scatterings of times when the Jews were scattered. But the Northern 10 tribes, they'll be scattered once and for all in 722 when this, this comes down in Hosea's time. And they'd be scattered up in the Assyrian empire. Now there would be a half breed of Jews called the, the um, Samaritans. That's why the Jews hated the Samaritans because they were some of the Jews taken in captivity in 722 who really became sort of Assyrians, but they were sort of kind of, they came back and settled in Samaria. What area? Some area. Um, and, um, and they would settle there and the Jews wouldn't even walk through Samaria. That's why when Jesus said, hey, we need to go to Samaria, the disciples were like, what? And then Jesus went and talked to the woman at the well in Samaria. Like that was such a unheard of thing to do. Why? Because the, the Samaritans were hated by the Jews because they were sort of assimilated by the Assyrian people and just hints of Judaism uh, still as a remnant of who they were. So when it says here, the West, the idea is this is talking about when the lion would roar and, and would sort of shake up the cubs um, and then the Jews would start to come back to the land and uh, tremble as a bird out of Egypt. Um, and this is one of those layers of the, the, the Jews being scattered all over the world. And then the Jews would be regathered and come back uh, to their land. And that's where we celebrate, you know, when uh, May 14th, 1948, the, the, the promise, the return of Israel to the land. And you and I have been able to watch that even in our lifetime. Don't forget all the amazing prophecies about the return of the Jews and God gathering his people. Probably one of the more exciting ones is Ezekiel chapter 37. We looked at that a few weeks ago. Well, all that to say, um, the Lord being a lion. Uh, you know, I love this imagery uh, um, of, of the lion, the lion of the tribe of Judah. And the closer you get to the end times, the more we see him as the lion. And uh, we'll still see him as a lamb that was slain before the foundations of the world, but he's also called the lion. And I love that. You know, it's interesting because they shall tremble, verse 11, as a bird out of Egypt, as a dove in the land of Assyria. Um, one of the things we have to remember is that God is the lion and the lion of the tribe of Judah is Jesus. And, and some people think, oh, what are we supposed to be afraid of? The hippie from Galilee that was a, you know, uh, you know kind of walking around fishing and doing stuff with the disciples. We have to understand that was his humble, you know, he made himself of no reputation, took upon himself the form of a servant. But in his second coming, he's coming as the conqueror, not the carpenter, the judge, not the one to be judged, but the judge. The first time he came as a lamb, the next time he comes as a lion. I love uh, the Chronicles of Narnia. How many of you guys have read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe? Uh, raise your hand. So that's good, more than half of you, that's great. How many of you guys are non-readers? You don't like reading books, raise your hand. Yeah, I love honesty, I, I'm with you, I'll admit. Um, uh, <laughs> and uh, you know, I, I read reference books mostly, but I, I just never really read for recreational reading. Um, but, but I'll tell you if, you, if you're gonna read one book, that's one I would recommend. Uh, it's, 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 like a, it's like a children's book, it's not hard to read. But it's a great story and it's an amazing allegory. Like the levels of allegory of pointing to the, the, the Jesus uh, is so amazing and the redemptive work of the cross. And it's just kind of a powerful, but fun story at the same time. But um, one of the things that always stuck in my mind is this little scene where the kids, you know, remember Lucy and Edmund, Peter and Susan, they're these kids that are in this new little land and they're trying to figure out who's this, who this, this person or thing that's coming. They're talking about this, 
um, uh, you know, this coming thing and they don't know what it is. Um, his name, I say Aslan. What do you guys say? As, Aslan, Aslan? Aslan? I, I, I don't know. You know, when you read it yourself, it's just not the same when somebody else tells you. I don't know how you pronounce it. So I say Aslan. A buddy of mine had a dog named Aslan and that's why I called him Aslan. But anyway, um, uh, let me read you a little section of this little story because the kids are figuring out who this is. Um, Lucy asks, you know, Mrs. Beaver, is he a man? Asked Lucy. Aslan, a man, said Mr. Beaver sternly. Certainly not. I tell you, he's the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor, emperor beyond the sea. Don't, don't you know who the king of beasts would be? Aslan is a lion, the great lion. Ooh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall rather feel nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or just silly. Well, then he isn't safe, Lucy said. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you, don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. <laughs> I love that. Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. That's, that's, that's what a great description of our lion of the tribe of Judah. Um, he's good, but he isn't safe. Um, he is good and he's good to his people and he protects his people. But if you're on the wrong side of the lion, uh, well, he's not safe. And you wanna be on the correct side of that. Um, pretty, pretty powerful story, pretty amazing thing. Uh, but all that to say, um, that's really what Hosea is talking about, this, this kind of version of the coming Messiah, Jesus, who's the lion of the tribe of Judah. Well, um, all that to say, that brings us really to uh, Hosea chapter 12. It says in verse one, Ephraim feedeth on wind. Does that sound filling? No. And followeth after the east wind. He daily increaseth lies and desolation, and they do make a covenant as the Assyrians, and oil is carried unto Egypt. Um, this is actually an interesting thing that was actually happening. Um, the east winds, uh, some people say that's sort of a name of Assyria. Um, uh, trying to schmooze them over. They're, they're the ones who will eventually take them out, but they're investing in the wind is the idea here, investing in the wind. And, um, and you know, their, their lies and their desolations making in a covenant. They made sort of a peace treaty with the Assyrian people, but the Assyrians will be the one that wiped them out. So that's how stupid the people are by making a covenant with the world. And that's what happens when you and I make a covenant with the world rather than go with the way of the Lord. But verse two, it says, the Lord hath also a controversy with Judah and will punish Jacob according to his ways, according to his doings, um, will he recompense him. So now even Judah is on the hot, hot seat. You know, uh, in the 12th verse it said, but Judah yet ruleth with God and is faithful with the saints. So in chapter 11, Judah is still in the good category, but now in chapter 12, the Lord's saying, Judah, they're next. They're in the next group that's gonna rebel. And it'd be about 117 years later when the men of Judah would get to where the men of Ephraim would be. Except instead of the Assyrians, it would be the Babylonians. And that's the stuff we read when we were in the book of Jeremiah. Well, all that to say, um, verse three, Jacob um, says, he took his brother by the heel in the womb and by his strength, he had power with God. Yea, he had 
power over the angel and prevailed and wept and made supplication unto him. He found him in Bethel and there he spake with us. Even the Lord God of hosts, the Lord is his memorial. Therefore turn thou to thy God, keep mercy and judgment and wait on thy God continually. Now this is referring to that amazing story, um, you know, where Jacob, you know, wrestled with, with uh, God there at Peniel. Uh, here it says an angel. And the question is, was it an angel or was it God? Or was it an angel of the Lord? That's what I believe it was. I, I believe that, you know, Jacob was wrestling. No, well, if Jacob's wrestling Jesus. Like, didn't Jesus, like, was he a black belt in Jiu-Jitsu? I mean, couldn't he have sort of dominated on Jacob? Yeah, but that's not what the Lord's objective was. The Lord was wanting to work something into Jacob. Do you remember, what does Jacob's name mean? Deceitful one or heel snatcher? Uh, that's what Jacob means. I always crack up when, when the church, you know, churches used to have the gift store, you know, the, and the, or the, you know, the Christian bookstores had the mugs with all the names of people. And, you know, as, as someone who studies some of the Bible names, I'm always kind of cracking up how, you know, they'll give some of them are true, but a lot of them, they have to kind of clean them up. So if you have a Jacob mug, um, it'll say truthful one on the mug, even though his name actually in the Hebrew means deceitful one. <laughs> it's like they just want to make the mug so people will buy it and, uh, and you can walk around with your lies uh, about who you are <laughs> as a deceitful Jacob. Um, by the way, the name James goes right there with Jacob. It's in the same uh, category, which is hilarious. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, I just find it interesting how we clean these things up. But the Lord says, no, your name is Jacob and you're deceitful and heel snatcher. Where did the heel snatcher part come from? It's, it's really where verse three, he took his brother by the heel in the womb and by his strength, he had power with God. So Esau was born first, but Jacob was trying to pull him back into the womb. Uh, from his very, the very womb, he was wrestling with his brother. And if you recall, you know, he even stole Esau's birthright. You know, the whole thing, amazing story. Esau, remember Mr. Field and Stream? Stinky, hairy. Um, the Bible says that he was a hunter. Jacob was smooth. So to trick his dad, Isaac, who was blind, and his senses were getting a little weak as he was nearing 100 years old, you know, Jacob puts on furs on his arms and ties like animal skins to his arms and sprinkles a bunch of dirt on him and, and uh, gets kind of stinky and, and comes and says, hey dad, I am Esau. He says, well, you sound like Jacob. Nope, Esau, smell me, touch my arms. Oh yeah, here, whew, here Esau, you stink. Uh, and your arms are very, they're like, uh, they feel like a deer's fur. And so he said, okay, and he gave Jacob the blessing. It was, it was through trickery and deceit. And that's really what the Lord says here. You know, he's speaking of Jacob, uh, you know, wrestling with the Lord and, and, and he goes from Jacob and then he wrestles all night and the Lord gives him a new name. And then, what is his name? The new name he gets? Israel, which means what? Governed by God. That's what Israel means, governed by God. What a change. That's a good name change, by the way. Um, the name changes in the Bible are really important and you gotta kind of follow them. Uh, remember when Abraham and Sarah uh, got their name changes? Um, boy, there's, there's a whole interesting study on the, um, the Hebrew alphabet. The Hebrew alphabet, like uh, the Greek alphabet of, of both those alphabets, there's not only um, symbols, but each symbol speaks of something. So like the, the um, the, the, uh, the first letter of the Hebrew is like a, a picture of an ox, which speaks of strength. But the, uh, the he uh, is kind of like the H, if you would. It speaks of uh, the spirit or wind. 
And so when Abraham and Sarah, remember it was Abram and Sarai. Uh, but when, and when Abraham gets his new name, the, the Lord, what does he add? He adds a single letter, the heh, which is the wind, the spirit. Same with Sarah, it goes from Sarai to Sarah. The, uh, you see, that's the wind of the Lord. And the Lord's spirit is now upon Abraham and Sarah. It's, it's an amazing thing when you see how the Lord, you know, swaps out these names. But here in this situation for Jacob, he went from heel snatcher and deceitful to now governed by God. And that's what the Lord is renumerating here and, and talking about how he wrestles with the Lord. And Jacob now is called Israel, governed by God. And, and then, um, uh, you know, he said there, um, he, you know, he took his brother by the heel. Um, yea, but he had the power over the angel and prevailed. The Lord, you know, the Lord stuck with him, even the Lord could have dominated. It's like the Lord stuck with them all night and then he just kept you know, going with it until the Lord changed him around there at Bethel. But um, verse six is kind of a key. Therefore, turn thou to thy God. He's, he's saying, even as Jacob wrestled and went from deceitful heel snatcher to governed by God, now I need you to turn to me and be governed by God. That's really what he's saying. And verse seven goes on. <clears throat> it says, he is a, uh, a merchant, the balances of deceit are in his hand. He loveth to oppress. And Ephraim said, yet I, would, yet I am become rich. I have found me out of substance in all my labors. They shall find none iniquity in me that were sin. Um, interesting here in verse seven and eight, the word oppress also means deceive or through deceit. Um, they were thinking because of their prosperity that they must be doing the right thing. Um, that's, that's important to know. That's not the way. And dishonest gain uh, is what he's talking about here, that they were getting what they were getting by dishonesty. And the Lord's sort of calling them out on this. Uh, they're saying, we have lots of substance. God must be on our side. And the Lord's saying, uh, actually, no. Um, it really kind of reminds me of Psalm uh, thirty-seven sixteen that says this, a little that a righteous man hath is better than the riches of many wicked it's better to be righteous and poor than to have tons of money, but be a wicked person or numbered among the wicked. Um, and that's kind of what the Lord is reminding them of. So um, verse nine, he says, and I that am the Lord, that's Jehovah, thy God from the land of Egypt will yet make thee to dwell in tabernacles as in the days of the solemn feast. Now question, if these Jews of Ephraim are gonna be dispersed forever um, and then uh, brought back into the land, when will the Jews be building tabernacles again? Now, if, if you're a Bible student, you know we're talking about a special feast, the Feast of Tabernacles. Anybody wanna take a guess? When will the Jews start? If you go to Jerusalem today on the Feast of Tabernacles, they'll, they'll build the tabernacles and do, celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. But when will they ultimately do this uh, all together as a whole nation. Anybody? The millennial kingdom. That's one of the places, that's one of the feasts that's gonna be reinstituted in the millennium. So the Lord's saying here, you're gonna do that again. And, you know, building these little structures, they, you know, we call them Sukkot or tents, uh, but they're little building structures. And you're supposed to be able to look out and see the stars through the, the lid of this little house that they built at the Feast of Tabernacles and feel the wind blow through your, your house because they had to remember the time of their wilderness wanderings. The Lord's gonna reinstitute. And the idea is they're gonna come full circle back to that remembrance uh, there in verse nine. 
And then in verse 10, I have also spoken by the prophets. I have multiplied visions and used similitudes by the ministry of the prophets. Um, You know, he's holding them accountable for all the word the prophets had been giving them. And whether it was visions like Daniel or um, similitudes, what's a similitude? It's an example or illustration like when Isaiah walked around naked for a year. That's an example. Um, or, you know, the prophets, they, you know, they did things. Remember, we saw Ezekiel and Jeremiah doing things like, you know, laying on their side for, you know, over a year on the ground. And, and then he flopped over on the other side. And we think, what's that all about? They were similitudes or pictures, illustrations. And the Lord's saying, I'm gonna hold you accountable for those things. We, uh, we are accountable for the word, by the way, even as they would be accountable for those things. Um, I think we will be accountable. For, we, we have it here in black and white. I mean, that... That makes me a little nervous because uh, similitude or scripture, which one do you want? Um, Similitudes are a little hard. Do you see a prophet walking around naked? There might be room for interpretation on that one. (laughs) But you and I, we we have no excuse whatsoever because you and I have been given the black and white written scripture and red, (laughs) written scriptures. Uh, there's no guessing. It's all right here for us. And, and I believe the Lord's gonna say, man, it's my word. Do you remember what's coming out of the Lord's mouth when he re- returns on his second coming? The sword, which is the word of God. Um, you know, if people say, hey, what does he think he's doing? What right does it? The sword is that which is, uh, gives him right to do whatever he wants to do because the word of God is powerful and living. So that's kind of an important part. Uh, of this whole thing. Uh, The Lord says, I'm gonna um, speak to you and I spoke to you. But then verse 11, it says, is there iniquity in Gilead? Surely they are vanity. They sacrifice bullocks in Gilgal. Um, Yea, their altars are as heaps in furrows of the field. We talked about Gilgal and Gilead last week. Verse 12, and Jacob fled into the country of Syria and Israel served for a wife and for a wife he kept sheep. And that's that whole story of Uncle, uh, Uncle Laban, if you recall. And, uh, and uh, that, you know, how he had to work seven years for Rachel, but he ended up getting Leah. So he worked another seven years. It, it, the Lord's, you know, reminding them of that time. And then verse 13, and by a prophet, the Lord brought Israel out of Egypt and by a, by a prophet was he preserved. And that's speaking of Moses. Verse 14, Ephraim provoked him to anger most bitterly. Therefore shall he leave his blood upon him and his reproach shall his Lord return unto him. And so we have, you know, the, the, uh, the kind of the retelling of the tale a little bit. But now, um, you know, we, we saw the birth of a nation sort of described here from Jacob being loved in Egypt and Jacob's story wrestling with God and all this stuff in chapter 11 and 12. But now in chapter 13, we sort of see the nation's death, the death of a nation. Now still the Lord with compassion, loving the people, but it's, it's kind of a brutal deal. Um, Oswald uh, Spengler uh, in his massive <laughs> two volume work, The Decline of the West, um, compares to um, s- some of the moments of history to the stages of biological life. Uh, civilizations are born, then they grow strong, then they deteriorate and they finally die. Um, by the way, while he made this ine- attempt to you know, um, never really link this inevitability of death of nations 
to sin. He never links it to sin. He, um, he, and he doesn't really know anything of redemption, but his work is provocative when he, when he writes about the death of nations and civilizations. But he says, he kind of goes in his writing and talks about these three stages. And this is interesting because you see this throughout history. The three stages are um, about uh, the death of a nation. Is number one, they, they first die in spirit. Uh, the spirit of a nation starts out really powerful and amazing, but then their spirit dies. Uh, you know, and that's the spiritual part of a nation. Then he notices, and this guy's like not even really a believer talking about this. But then he says that he sees the soul. Um, that's, you know, as, as a human body, we're spirit. We're spiritual beings, but the soul is your mind and your emotions. And once your soul dies, uh, and then, then you have the body eventually die. And he talks about how that's the pattern. But this is the pattern we see in the Northern Kingdom of Ephraim that Hosea is dealing with. Spiritually, they became, uh, you know, uh, worshiping Baal and their, their decline uh, away from God. Then their soul dies. That is their morality and the way they thought about things and the, what they did about things. But eventually their body would die by the Assyrians crushing them. And so, um, you know, this pattern is kind of what, what happens to nations. That's what's happened to Ephraim. The reason I point all this stuff out is because I have to say, as a you know, red-blooded patriotic American, I would love to see our nation thrive and do well. I would, uh, you know, I'm a patriot, I, I love this country. And we had a, a, a nation that had a, a, a spiritual awakening, an enlightenment. You know, um, if you read Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God in the sermon, you know, that was powerful and, and brought about really one of the first real enlightenments in this country that was lasting and, and beautiful. Um, and how we, we were sort of breathed new life into this country. But as our spiritual side has died, we've, we're also watching it. And I think you and I are seeing our soul of America die right now as our spirit maybe has been dead for a long time. You know, back in the 60s, Time Magazine, God is dead and taking prayer out of schools and, you know, people sort of uh, entering this new age of, uh, you know, we're smarter than that. We're gonna go the way of Europe. We're way past the whole God thing. Um, but as the spirit dies, so then the soul dies. And I think that's the process we might be watching right now. Why would there be such crazy immorality in America today? It's because our spirit died a long time ago. Um, and it's sad to watch. And it wouldn't shock me at all if the body, if you would, dies soon. And what's even more profound and sad is in the Bible, when it comes to Bible prophecy in the last days, the United States is not even mentioned um, all the other nations are, China, Russia, Turkey, Iran, uh, you know, uh, Syria, Jordan, Egypt. Um, you know, like it's amazing how the, a lot of the other players are mentioned, but you'd think the most powerful nation in the world would be mentioned in the end time scenario, but we're not. Um, and I wonder if it's because we're, we're, it's sort of a similar place where the people of Hosea's time were, sad to say. I know that sounds fairly much like the prophet of doom, but it's gonna get worse as we get into this chapter. <laughs> so chapter 13, um, it says there, when Ephraim spake trembling, he exalted himself in Israel, but when he offended in Baal, he died. Um, when Ephraim spoke, there was trembling. There used to be like Ephraim was known to be strong and powerful. Um, but you know, the old saying is true, greatness in your past does not guarantee greatness in your future. And sometimes you can almost forget that your greatness in your past, it's been long gone, and you still think you're rolling in your former greatness. That's where 
the people of Ephraim were. They used to speak with authority and with trembling, but he exalted himself. And when he offended Baal, Ephraim's toast, he's dead. That's what it's saying. Verse two, and now they, have, they sin more and more and have made them molten images of their silver and idols according to their own understanding. All of it is the work of the craftsmen. They say of them, let the men that sacrifice kiss the calves. Kiss the calves? Well, do you remember uh, when Jeroboam made the calves there at Bethel and Dan and made the people worship the golden calves there? Um, that's what it is. They were kissing the calf of the gold in, in Ephraim. That's how bad they were. Can I just say, uh, you know, one of the things I, I still kind of wonder, and, and, you know, it might be good for you just to remind and lovingly ask your Catholic friends. Maybe you were raised in the Catholic tradition. But um, did you ever wonder why the Catholicism has bent so much towards statues and images? I mean, when I read the Ten Commandments, it's pretty clear. I'm not a you know, rocket scientist, but when it says, thou shalt not make unto thee any graven images. Um, that's pretty clear, wouldn't you say? Um, you know, when we did our Paul's missionary journeys, um, we went all over, you know, into Turkey and Greece and visited the island of Patmos where John received the revelation of Jesus Christ. And, but our last stop was Rome. Has anybody been to Rome? How many has been to Rome? Um, and I'd never been to Rome up just till, you know, several years back when I was there, but we shot some video. And, you know, if you're in Rome, you kind of have to go see St. Peter's Basilica. Uh, some of you say, you shouldn't go there. Oh, I did. Um, and and uh, we, we wanted, I wanted to see it. And I'm glad I did because I, I kind of couldn't believe my eyes. Um, by the way, when you go to St. Peter's Basilica, it really is St. Peter's Basilica. It's definitely not Jesus's Basilica. Um, I dare you to try to find a statue of Jesus anywhere. Well, Brad, are statues of Jesus okay? Not really, I don't think so. Um, thou shalt not make into thee any graven image. Um, and, um, and yet, you know, the Catholics, some papal edict came down and, you know, seeing statues and the icons and all that stuff, they've sort of rationalized that it's okay, but I think it's kind of not. And when you go through, in fact, I even brought up some video footage that Micah and I were able to kind of capture when we went to Rome and it's, um, uh, you know, St. Peter's Basilica is, is kind of amazing. And like, you, you gotta be ad admiring the, at least the, um, um, you know, the um, architecture. The architecture is incredible. And I, I, I loved it for that. Uh, you know, what, what people were able to do and build and stuff, you know, so many, you know, centuries ago, it is pretty amazing. Here's Athey Creekers, we're all standing in line uh, to go into this place. Um, but. I, I, I lost count in the first 10 seconds uh, how many statues are everywhere. And people do exonerate and, you know, really in, in some ways, I would say even kind of worship um, some of these things. Now you say, but I was raised as Catholic. We don't worship statues, but it, um, tomato, tomato. Um, if you walk through here, you know, they, they treat the stuff as their holy places and holy relics and stuff like that. Um, do you remember the snake that, G, that, that uh, you know, uh, Moses put on the, on the pole and it was them when they got bit by the snakes, uh, you know, they would be saved. Well, 500 years later, that became an idol to them. They started worshiping the pole that Moses had made. And so Hezekiah smashed it up into pieces and said, Nehushtan, it's just a thing of brass. So here's the, the Peter's statue at the St. Bill. We, we shot this, but I told Micah, make sure you get a good shot of his foot because his foot used to have toes. Um, 
But because there's been so many people kissing this, um, now, now I'm a little bit of a germaphobe, so uh, uh, I didn't have any problem with this anyway, let alone the idolatry part. Uh, but I wouldn't touch that if you paid me a million dollars. Billions of lips have been on those very toes. Billions of lips. That just grosses me out if you ask me. Even if you put Purell on it, I wouldn't do it. Um, <laughs> um, but see how shiny and nice it is? It used to be real toes and toenails that were carved in there. Uh, you can look at the other foot and see what it's supposed to look like. But people come up and kiss the toe of Peter. Do you think Peter'd be into that? Hey, that's a good idea. Kiss my toe. <laughs> Peter would rip his garments. How do I know that? Well, that's what they did when they tried to worship Peter and James and John and those guys. They would do stuff like that. They'd rip their clothes and say, we are not gods. Um, so the reason I say that, it's not just to bash you know, the Catholic church. I'm just saying, you know, churches get off on some weird things and we have to be really careful uh, to not go against the Lord. Um, and, 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 you know, this idea of, of, of you know, icons and images, uh, Athe Greek, I think we've erred maybe on the side of being a little weird about this. Uh, you could even say, Brett, where's your cross? And I talk about this once in a while. I'm not against crosses. I would put a cross up here at some point or even on our roof or out on the you know, sign. Um, but you know what's so funny? The fact that we don't have a cross, people have flipped out. Brett, where's your cross? You're not a real church. One guy mentioned on Facebook, they're not a real church. They don't have a cross anywhere to be seen. And I would say, wait a minute, where in the Bible does it say we're supposed to have an electric chair in our, house, in our church? It's not an electric chair. Oh, it's worse than that. Electric chair is what the cross is. The cross was a tortured device that was used to kill our, our Messiah, Jesus Christ, our savior. Now, of course to me, the old rugged cross is precious to me, of course. And the idea of Jesus dying on the cross. And, and again, I don't have a problem with churches that put crosses up. I'm not, I'm not making that argument. And I know people are gonna go, Brett doesn't like crosses. People tell me that. Uh, that's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying as soon as we sort of make an idol out of it, and, and you wanna know how a church can know if they've made an idol out of it? If they put a cross up and then if some interior decorator says, we're gonna move the cross or even take that down and everybody flips out, you've made an idol out of it. Like it's time to chill out and stop being an idol worshiper. <laughs> like it's, it's really kind of a, a, a thing we should be careful about. Um, Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image uh, that becomes sort of worshiped or exonerated. So anyway, just something to be aware of. But, but by this time, these calves have been kissed by the people of the North. They, they thought these golden calves. And I, I just, I think if you're kissing something, uh, wiping it with your hair, when you go to the um, Church of the Holy Sepulcher in Jerusalem, there's a stone where they believe Jesus, lay, they laid Jesus's body. And there's these ladies wiping it with their hair and weeping on it and, and, and wiping with rags and putting the rags in and wiping it, hoping to get a, just a touch of Jesus's DNA on the rags. And then they give them to their relatives. This rag touched the very stone Jesus was laid on. Like people get into this weird stuff and we should not be into that. It's Nehushtan, like Hezekiah said. It's just a thing of brass, forget about it. Well, that in verse two is these golden calves and they took it way too far. Well, um, so it says there, um, whoops, I flipped the page, sorry about that. Um, so then it says, verse three, therefore they shall be as the morning cloud, as the early dew that passeth away, as the chaff that is driven with the whirlwind out of the floor and the smoke out of the chimney. 
Yet I am the Lord thy God from the land of Egypt, and thou shalt know no God but me, for there is no savior beside me. I did know thee in the wilderness and in the land of great drought. According to their pasture, so were they filled. They were filled and their heart was exalted. Therefore have they forgotten me. Verses uh, three through six, kind of interesting here. Um, First of all, it says, there's no savior but me, the Lord says. Now, what does that do? This verse should be one verse among many in the Bible that tells you that Jesus is what? God. Because there's no savior but me, the Lord says. That's God speaking to the Hebrews in Hebrews in Hosea chapter 13. But then Jesus uh, is called God in John chapter one. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's Jesus. And Jesus said in John chapter 14, verses six through seven, he said, Jesus said unto him, I am the way, the truth and life. No man comes to the father, but by me. If you had known me, you should have known my father also. And from henceforth, you know him and have seen him. If you had known me, you should have known my father also. Later, Jesus would say, man, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. Jesus is God. Um, if you're a person who says, ah, you don't have to believe that Jesus is God, that is one of the essential doctrines of the Christian faith. If you deny that Jesus is God, you're outside of the pale of orthodoxy of Christian faith. That's an important thing. I say that because once in a while I hear people think, I like what, you know, Athe Greek teaches in the Bible, but you know, I don't think we have to really make Jesus God. I gotta say, as lovingly as I know how, that's heresy to say that Jesus is not God. It goes against all doctrine. And it's one of the essential doctrines of the Christian faith. And it's all throughout the Bible, you know, Jesus saying, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, I and my Father are one. And he wasn't just saying we're tight because the Jews would have celebrated that if that's what he meant, but they understood what he meant. And so they picked up rocks and said, he makes himself equal with God. And they went to stone him to death. Um, I like turning my you know, Mormon and Joe's fitness friends to uh, the book of Revelation because um, even in the book of Mormon, they left these verses alone enough to where they still uh, actually say something about this. Um, in Revelation chapter one, verse eight, you know, we read that you know, God is speaking and it's very clear who's speaking. I am alpha and omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is and which was and which is to come, the almighty. Now, even kind of a beginning student of the Bible knows when it's talking about this alpha and omega, the A and the Z, if you would, the beginning and the end. There is no one, there's only one of those. There's only one beginning and one ending. And uh, the Lord says, that's me, the Lord God Almighty. And the word the Almighty there at the end, there are the two words there, tells us that's speaking of God himself. That's Revelation chapter one, verse eight. But in the same book, if you, if you fast forward to Revelation 22, verse 13, Um, we have Jesus talking. You can look this up because right there in that little paragraph, it says, I, Jesus, and it tells us what he's saying. And he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. And there can't be two of those. So how is it that Jesus um, is the Alpha and Omega and God the Father is the Alpha and Omega? The, um, The book of Revelation is either contradicting itself and wrong or Jesus is God. And I believe Uh, of course, uh, that Jesus is God. I hope you do too. And don't be duped or try to diminish Jesus in any way, shape or form. Well, anyway, uh, I digress. Here we go. I'm getting off course here on some things. Uh, So we pick it up again. 
I love this where he says, there's no savior beside me. And by the way, verses five and six is talking about the, the drought when they were thirsty in the wilderness and the rock that followed them was Christ. And we talked about that, by the way. Remember uh, when I was talking about the types there in 1 Corinthians 10, verses one through four, uh, it talks about you know, the, the, the rock that followed them, that rock was Christ. So um, just, just jot that down in your notes because that's really what verses five and six are talking about. Well, it goes on verse seven. And it says, therefore, I will be unto them as a lion, as a leopard by the way I will observe them. I will meet them as a bear that is bereaved of her whelps and I will rend the call of their heart and there will I devour them like a lion. The wild beast shall tear them. Um, now this is interesting because this is um, the Lord who's gonna do this, but does this remind you of a beast that we studied recently? In what book? Anybody wanna remember? Daniel. We saw a beast that had these four characteristics, the leopard, the bear, the lion, and the wild beast. Interesting. Why, why is that? And, and um, you know, when we saw that, that beast in Daniel, it was a bad thing. Well, do you understand? This is part of the um, thing that we have to observe where Satan is a duplicator and an imitator, and he makes uh, sort of uh, fake versions of the same thing. Just like there's the Holy Trinity, God the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, there's an unholy trinity. Satan, the beast, and the false prophet. Or the Satan, Antichrist, and false prophet. For every thing of God, the devil sort of duplicates. And so I think that's kind of what we're seeing here. The Lord is describing how he's gonna be for Israel this, this powerful being or beast, as it would, but in the best sense. Verse nine, um, it says, um, uh, o Israel, thou hast destroyed thyself, but in me is thine help. I will be thy king, where is any other that may save thee in all the cities and thy judges whom thou saidst, give me a king and princes. And I will give thee a king in mine anger and took him away in my wrath. This is where the Lord you know, um, gave them a king. Remember, we want a king. Lord's talking about that history, how the Lord gave them what they wanted. Verse 12, the iniquity of Ephraim is bound up. His sin is hid. The sorrows of, travailing, of a travailing woman shall come upon him. He is an unwise son, for he should not stay long in the place of the breaking forth of children. Um, this is basically for you that have uh, given childbirth, moms. Uh, this is the baby that just won't come out. <laughs> refuses to come out. Uh, that's what the Lord's saying. You're like a stubborn child that's stuck in the mother's womb and does not want to come out. <laughs> Interesting imagery. Just glad I'm a guy. That's all I have to say about that. Um, verse 14, I will ransom them from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death. O death, I will, give, I will be thy, uh, thy plagues. O grave, I will be thy destruction. Repentance shall be hid from mine eyes. Now, this verse should make you think of another verse in the Bible, but in the King James, you might miss it. Uh, let's see if you can notice the similarity uh, in the new King, or no, this will be the new American Standard version here. Shall I ransom them from the lid, of, uh, lid at hand, uh, at power of the Sheol? Shall I redeem them from death? Um, where, are your, uh, where are your stings, thorns, Sheol? Um, where is your sting? Compassion will be hidden from thy sight. Um, the death of uh, the sting of death, 
the victory of the grave. Where, we, where do we read about that? Anybody wanna remember? In 1 Corinthians, when we talk about the resurrection, you remember that? It's 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 15, uh, where this should sort of maybe uh, remind us of some of the, uh, the language here, where he says, this corruptible, speaking of our bodies that are gonna die, must put on incorruption, this mortal shall put on immortality and shall be brought to pass when it is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which gives victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So the victory over death and the grave is in Jesus. And uh, Hosea the prophets gives us the bad news, but then Paul the apostle gives us the good news about the grave and about death. And, and I love that. Uh, boy, I wish we had a little more time to go into that one. But all that to say, um, it's, let's finish it up here. So it, it says um, in verse 15, Though um, he be fruitful among his brethren, an east wind shall come, speaking of Assyria, the wind of the Lord shall come up from the wilderness and his spring shall become dry, his fountain shall be dried up. He shall spoil the treasure of all pleasant vessels. Samaria shall become desolate for she hath rebelled against her God and they shall fall by the sword. Their infants shall be dashed in pieces and their women with child shall be ripped up. There it is, nice ending to uh, the book of Hosea. Isn't that wonderful? Um, now, that is a pretty horrible ending, but you gotta remember, that's not the ending. We read the, the last chapter on Sunday. So don't forget, what did we see there on Sunday? Here in chapter uh, 14, we see the need that you know we're fallen in our iniquities. Verse one, verse two, confess our deeds. We saw that in chapter 14. Verse three, be willing to concede. Uh, verses uh, three, and then verse four and through eight, we need to realize you've been freed. And verse four is worth repeating. Um, I will hear the, their backsliding. I will love them freely for mine anger is turned away from him. This is the redemptive Lord speaking to the rebellious people of Ephraim. And then he finishes up with a reminder to take heed there in verse nine. We looked at chapter 14 in its entirety on this last weekend and sort of, sort of ends on a nice note where the Lord says, man, if you wanna be saved, here's what you gotta do. Sad to say Ephraim never did it. The question is, what are you gonna do? And uh, the fact that you're here at a Wednesday night Bible study means maybe you see that being saved is important. I think that's good. But maybe if you're here or watching online or something, if you've never been freed from your sins, confess your sins and repent and turn to the Lord and he will save you. Don't be stubborn like these people of Ephraim. What a lesson, powerful lessons really we learn from the book of Hosea. Let's pray together. And Lord, we're so thankful for your word. The book of Hosea is powerful and um, just sad in that the people just continued to rebel against you, but beautiful that your love just continues to reach out to them over and over again. Lord, we're thankful that your mercy endures forever. And that even Israel and their rebellion, um, thousands of years later, we see, them, see you regathering your people and a plan and a purpose for Israel to be saved and to turn to you but I pray that we would be quick to come to you and turn and accept your work and believe your word. So Lord, as we've taken this time to study this book, may it be internalized and received and remembered, Lord. May it bring forth good fruit in Jesus' name, amen.